Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey, and I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time, um, especially welcome to you. Uh, today we're going we're to continue a series that we started a few weeks ago called How to Beat the Odds. And uh, this series really is about kind of those practical steps of making choices, decisions, and pressing into those places and spaces of life where, quite honestly, it's, it's really easy to be a statistic. It's really easy to experience average in the places where average isn't good. And that what does it take, what does it look like to begin to live a life that beats the odds? And that one of the areas two weeks ago we looked at was in communication. And then just recently, we, uh, just last week, we looked about dealing with our past. And that for us, if we're going to be people who move into our future, it oftentimes involves us dealing with the past that we've come from. Uh, today, I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, kind of full disclaimer, this has been something I've wanted to talk about for about 16 months, but um, I, I've just struggled to put it into words. So I'm going to try today, uh, which means uh, we're all guinea pigs. Uh, but don't worry, you're not the first time that this has been a guinea pig. My wife and I have processed through this. So I just felt like you should know that because I, I'm, I'm going to press into some spaces and places in your life and in my life that maybe um, you, you haven't experienced before or maybe didn't come ready for. So I just want to give you a disclaimer. All right. But this is essential because if we're going to be people who beat the odds, this is a place we have to go. When I was 10 years old, I remember going shopping with my mom, and um, which was kind of a big deal. We grew up really poor, and so there was only about two times a year where we got clothes. Christmas, which meant I didn't shop because Santa brought it. And the other time was right before school where I got to go with her. And I remember at this point, uh, around age 10, um, I was growing about as twice as fast this way as I was this way. Okay, and, and so my mom, we're me and my brother, we walk into uh, this uh, clothing store. We go to my brother. She takes care of him. He's younger. We get the slims, the regulars, the athletic, you know, and it's kind of working through. And then she's like, okay, Chris, it's time to get your clothes now. And so I'm like, oh, and she starts walking. And uh, she moves over to the other side of the store. And I look up, and there on the uh, kind of like placard dangling, sex, kind of setting apart this section, says the word husky. And I was like, Mom, what does husky mean? She's like, well, this is where we have to get your, 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 your clothes, son. I was like, what's husky mean? It's like, Mom, all these, they're bigger this way than they are this way. She's like, oh, yeah, well, that's what husky means, son. Um, husky is, you know, for people who are big boned. And I was like, oh, that's why I'm so big. Like, oh my goodness, big boned. And she was like, yeah, so this is, um, you wear, you wear huskies. And I was like, something in me was like, this, I don't know, but this doesn't feel right. Do I really have larger bones than the average person? And, and should husky be the name for that? Or maybe this should be a medical issue because I feel like that's not normal. But deep inside of my little 10-year-old brain, I was beginning to realize something about humanity. It was quite an eye-opening moment, in fact, for me, that I realized that as humans, we have a tendency to want to mislabel and to avoid saying and doing difficult things. Instead of saying section for kids who are overweight, it was husky. And I can say that because I was that kid. But instead, it got labeled. And I'd like to think that was a 10-year-old thing, but you know what, as I've gotten older and now I'm starting to look at 40s coming, um, I realize that this is a pretty consistent theme of humanity, that we have trouble dealing with the difficult, the hard, and the uncomfortable things. We will like to 
mislabel them or relabel them to make it feel a little bit better for us. But the reality is, is that we don't like to confront the things that are oftentimes holding us and hindering us back from having a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. Um, psychologists actually have noticed this enough that they've even named this tendency for humans to do this. It's called the ostrich effect. And ironically, it is not the ostrich that actually puts their head in the sand to avoid difficult things and to pretend like it's not there. It's actually a human thing. But because of the birds, uh, kind of the myth around this bird's tendency to do this, they, they labeled it ostrich. The, the reason they first noticed it was they noticed that investors had a tendency when the stock market dropped that investors tend to look at their portfolio less when financial times are more difficult. Or when people are sick, they have a tendency to, to not go to the doctor as quickly as they should. That what they noticed was across the board, relationally, physically, financially, emotionally, we have a tendency to avoid the things that are right in front of us. The very things that we should be paying attention to, we want to ignore. And that's called the ostrich effect. And the problem is, is that it has a huge defect. It prevents us from experiencing a life that beats the odds. It's oftentimes the reason why many of us stay in statistically safe places of average and good and okay with okay relationships, with okay life passions, with okay understanding of what God's desire and will for our life, that we just live in this safe place and space where we don't experience what life was meant to experience. And what I want to do today is I want to press and step into something critical that's needed to beat the ostrich effect. Because it's not enough to name it. Psychologists have named it, but they have not tamed it. So how do we not just name the ostrich effect in our life? How do we begin to tame the ostrich effect in our life? And to do so, I want to take you to a story. A story that, quite honestly, on the surface, will have, it will seemingly have nothing to do with our life today. Or even the ostrich effect alone. But if you're willing to go with me on this journey, then what you will find as we peep beneath the surface is that the heart of this story is the heart that's needed to beat, to tame the ostrich effect in our lives. It's found in Mark chapter 5, and as Jason referenced earlier, if you have the Encounter Church app, it's already been preloaded for you in the message notes section. Um, if you, you don't have it or you haven't been able to download it, it'll actually be on the screen behind me as I work through it. But to, let me set the stage a little bit. This is kind of help you understand. Mark is written by a man named Mark. It's the second letter in the New Testament. Uh, historians believe that Mark uh, gets, gets his information from the eyewitness accounts of Peter. And it makes sense when you understand that Peter's dictation of his time with Jesus was the source for Mark's material. You can kind of understand why Mark has this, this vibe. It, it reflects Peter's personality. It's fast moving. It's, it's, it's abrasive. It's direct. It's detailed. It's moving. It, it seems to leave out certain things and then highlights other things that some of the other stories and some of the other letters about Jesus's life doesn't. And it's because it comes from Peter's eyewitness accounts. And it has this action-oriented kind of vibe to it. It moves quickly, and it moves swiftly. And oftentimes, the story, Mark had a tendency to, to, to highlight people who interacted with Jesus. And this is one of those moments where Mark does that. In Mark chapter 5, verses 21, uh, we begin, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. 
He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And this sets the stage. Jesus at this point is starting to become nationally known. He is now starting to become almost controversial. He is traveling to one place because he was kicked out of another place. Because he has this way of cutting straight to the truth, of doing drastic, impossible things. And it makes some people uncomfortable. And yet, simultaneously, it draws crowds. And this is where Jesus is. He's coming into a new region. And people have already gotten word that Jesus is crossing over the lake by boat. And so they're waiting for him when he steps off. And he takes a step onto the shore. And the crowds begin to to gather around. And one man breaks through the crowd. And we know that it says that he's a synagogue ruler. And the reason this is important is that this man is prominent in this community. He's powerful. He's wealthy. He's influential. He is a man who gets things done. He makes decisions. He moves people. And so he's watching his 12-year-old little girl die. And so what does he do? He rushes to the space where this miracle worker named Jesus has just arrived. And without any kind of apology, without any kind of, oh, I'm sorry, I just bumped through the crowd. He runs up to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dying. Can you come right now? Time is of the essence. We have to get there. And Jesus says yes. And they set out. This crowd is now starting to move. And this is one of the reasons, these subtle little moments where you can see Peter's handy, kind of like descriptions coming into play. It says that the crowds followed and pressed around him. It's like Peter's sitting there and he's telling Mark about this moment and he remembers how the crowds were suffocating him. It's like being rush hour in the tea or coming out of Fenway. It's just the crowds are everywhere. You feel the heat. You you smell the sweat. It's like I remember that moment. And we're just all moving like a blob. And in the midst of that, the story continues. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. In the midst of this unfolding story of this man who asked Jesus to heal his daughter, a woman slips into the crowd. This large, massive crowd And it's really easy as you read through the story to get fixated on the man and his 12-year-old daughter and just see this as something that happens along the way. But this is not a pit stop. This is not something that happens along the way. This is something significant. And the reason why it doesn't jump out at you and me, the reason I even gave you the warning at the beginning that this isn't going to seem very relatable is because there's so much packed into this woman's story. We find out in just two verses that she's been bleeding for 12 years. So she has some type of urinary, like urinary kind of intestinal, something like going on down here. But the key isn't that there's a sickness. Peter's a Jewish man, and he, he's drawing out the detail that's important. He says that she's been bleeding. And bleeding in the Jewish world meant you were unclean which had all the baggage that you and I just can't relate to. She's an outcast. She's a nobody. 
And to top it off, it says that she spent all she has financially going to doctor after doctor after doctor, and no one can help her. In fact, she keeps getting worse. This is a woman for over a decade has not had the touch of another human being because when you're unclean, no one can touch you without becoming unclean. It means if you sit in the chair, that chair has to be destroyed because you made the chair unclean. You can't go into a crowd because if you brush up against anyone, they instantly become unclean too. You can't get married. You can't have children. You live in a place of total isolation, darkness, depression. And this woman for 12 years has emotionally, spiritually, relationally, physically lived in a place of bankruptcy. And this woman is incredible because she shows up that day. And when I was first beginning to process through this message, I was like, man, how do I grab hold? This is so, this is 2,000 years ago. We, we don't feel the weight of unclean the way she would have felt it. This was her everyday life. She wouldn't have wanted to look in a mirror if she'd have found one. She lived with everything in her life as a reminder that she, she's worthless. And she's unwanted. And she's hopeless. And this is where she is that day, in a place that she shouldn't be, about to do something she shouldn't do. But here's where I want to stop. Because I want you to understand how truly profound this woman is. Like I said, on the surface, this is maybe inspirational, but not very relatable. But it's the heart of this story that I think is instructional. It's the heart of this story that's impactful. A few weeks ago, I was reading a children's book. And it was a children's book that I felt like somehow, in a very unique way, captured the essence of what I wanted to communicate through this story. And if you would allow, I'd like to have story time. I'm going to try to channel my old school librarian, which I don't really know how to do. So I'm going to try. Um, I'm not the book reader in my home because I don't read it as well as my wife. So I'm going to try to read a book. And the book is going, this is going to be my large book. I'm not going to turn the pages, but it will be up here. And I want you to read this book with me and experience what I felt the first time so that we can begin to understand and to go beneath the surface of this woman and her story. It's called The Heart in the Bottle by Oliver Jeffers. Let's start. Once there was a little girl, much like any other, whose head was filled with all the curiosities of the world. And I, some of these pictures are kind of small, so I'll periodically we'll stop and tell you. But here's a little girl. She's sitting there right beside her father in his chair, and he's reading the book, and he's kind of showing her all the kind of crazy realities of how big and vast and magnificent the world is. With thoughts of the stars, with wonder at the sea, she took delight in finding new things. So in all these spaces, she's with her dad, and he's kind of showing her all these things. And, and this little girl's imaginative, and she's drawing a picture of a well that he's told her a story about and that she imagined like floating in the ocean until the day she found an empty chair. Feeling unsure, the girl thought the best thing 
was to just put her heart in a safe place, just for the time being. So she put it in a bottle and she hung it around her neck. And at that seemed to fix things at first, although in truth, nothing was the same. She forgot about the stars, and she stopped taking notice of the sea. She was no longer filled with all the curiosities of the world and didn't take much notice of anything, and the empty chairs just kind of bouncing around in her head, other than how heavy and awkward the bottle had become. But at least her heart was safe. It might never have occurred to the girl what to do, had she not met someone smaller and still curious about the world? There was a time when the girl would have known how to answer her, but not now, not without her heart. And it was right at that moment that she decided to get it back out of the bottle. But she didn't know how, and she couldn't remember. And nothing seemed to work. The bottle couldn't be broken. It just bounced and rolled right down to the sea. But there it occurred to someone smaller and still curious about the world that she might, in fact, know a way. And it just so happened that she did. And the heart was put back where it came from. And the chair wasn't so empty anymore. But the bottle was. And I love the, the story. It's so raw and real, isn't it? And what you see in this story is the very opposite of what this woman's life was. This woman had every reason in the world the day the doctor said, I'm sorry, this is permanent. To tuck her heart inside that bottle, to go back to her house and just quietly die. Unknown, unwanted, and unloved. But what did this woman do for 12 years? She goes to doctor after doctor after doctor. And instead of getting better, it gets worse. But what does she do? She hears about Jesus. And so the day he shows up, she's in the crowd and she does something significant. This woman whose life up until this moment has been defined by disappointment after disappointment, by dreams dying after dreams dying. As crushed as she is, she shows up in a crowd where she's not even accepted and she does something, right? Imagine she's bumping around and every time she bumps and presses against someone, it's a reminder of what she's not supposed to do. It's a reminder of a place she's not supposed to be. And yet she's there. And four times in the course of this passage, four times it mentions her touching Jesus's cloak. When you read the Bible and you realize that there is an economy to words, words that get repeated matter. So why does Mark capture Peter's eyewitness? Why does Mark and Peter bring up so much the touching of the cloak? It's because that subtle, simple action was a significant act of courage. To reach out and touch one of the nation's most famous rabbis, one of the nation's most pure and holy, powerful men, was an act of courage that is almost standing ovation worthy. And it's in this moment that she grabs hold of us, that she not just inspires us, she instructs us. 
Because here's the challenge. I hesitated to tell you what it was that was essential to overcoming the ostrich effect in our life. And the reason why was because I was afraid if I told you, you would check out, brush it off, or disengage. Because the word that often gets used has such a different meaning than what I think this woman embodies. You see, the key to, to overcoming the defect of the ostrich effect is courage. But for us, many times, courage is about these extraordinary moments, these heroic actions, when in fact, courage is about the everyday moment to push in, to step in instead of shrink back. This woman who embodies in this story that captures the heart of what courage really is, because you know where courage comes from? The word, I like words, but the word courage comes from the Latin word for heart. Courage at its source was not heroic bravado. Courage was a willingness to live full, wholehearted life. That meant that you took it all. It wasn't safe in a bottle. It wasn't comfortable wrapped around a wall. It was outside of your chest. Fully engaged with every moment that life brought with it. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the downright heartbreaking. And she, in this story, returns us to the root of what courage really is. It's a willingness. It's a willingness in the everyday moments to step in instead of shrink back. For, for me, I think one of the moments that kind of helped to crystallize that, getting married definitely pushed me into having to wrestle with this idea of courage. But it was children that made me really confront it. You see, some of the best advice I ever got uh, on parenting, right before um, Ella was born, about a month before, I was having lunch with um, a Scottish pastor, and I asked him his advice. He'd raised incredible women, and she said, man, what's the secret? And, um, and he gave me two pieces of advice, and one I've shared before, right? It's, he's like, a dance with your daughter, laddie. Dance with her every day. Close the blinds, grab hold, and just dance. Because one day, she won't want to dance anymore. But the second piece is what grabbed me. He said, on the day that she stops wanting to dance, you have a choice. And that choice will define your relationship with your daughter for the rest of your life. Because that moment you ask her to dance and she says no, you will experience pain. Your heart that has been on the chest beating fully for her, wholeheartedly for her, will feel the pain of what she can do when you live that exposed. And he said, and I have watched fathers after father after father in that moment where the little girl says, I don't want to dance anymore, daddy. I've watched them shrink away in pain and put up a little bit of a wall or tuck a little part of it in a bottle. And by doing so, the relationship begins to grow distant in small, subtle steps. He said, so the day that she says no, I don't want you to shrink back. I want you to step in. I was prepared when she was a teenager for that to happen. And then she turned four. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world? 
Because all of a sudden, this little beautiful curly hair ray of sunshine developed the capacity to hurt me. And to do exactly what he warned me she could do, to hurt me in places and spaces I didn't even know it was possible. And I felt in me that first moment when she hurt me, a tendency, a tug to shrink back because that's just too uncomfortable. That's too painful. And that day I decided to step in. And every single day since then, I've decided to step in. Those moments when her pre-teenage year words slip out, I, I step into it. And I remind her of my love. And I remind her that she can't do anything to hurt me that would make me leave her or back away from her. That, that moment. But that's just not in parenting. I think courage as historians and authors and poets have said for thousands of years is the essence of all the other virtues. Courage is at the heart of allowing someone who you work with to give you feedback. And instead of you punching them with your fist, you listen. Courage is at the heart of having that conversation with your significant other and them saying hard and difficult things. Courage is about looking at your financial position. And, and instead of kind of sticking your head back in the sand, it confronts and owns where you are and says, this is reality. Courage is about those small, everyday moments that say, I have an opportunity. I can step in or I can step out. I mean, courage is essential for life because no matter how you reclaim it, whether you're sitting in a performance review and you're told growth opportunities, it still hurts, doesn't it? And it's really easy to fall into the trap of trying to play it safe. But here's what's significant. Safe will always give you statistical averages. Greatness is never found in safeness. Greatness is always, always experienced when you're willing to take a step of courage. Courage and, and greatness coexist together. You can't separate them. And whether it's in a significant moment of life or it's in a small moment of life, whether it's personally when you take the courage to be to share something and you get misunderstood or whether it's something professionally when you step out and you take a different course. Courage is in the essence of what fuels greatness. And this woman. She shows us how. She shows us how, as a student, you can walk across a lunchroom and be willing to rescue, risk your reputation because you believe people matter more than your reputation. So it's okay if people see you talking to him or her. Like She shows us how we can risk being misunderstood in our relationships. And so how do you actually do this? Let me give you a really simple way. Because I told you that this series is about giving you really hands-on practical stuff. So let me boil it down in a way that I think is helpful. This woman does this. If we continue to roll through the story, you would see that she actually embodies all of this. Um, she, in fact, when Jesus says in verse 32, who touched me? I know someone touched me and the disciples are being sarcastic and they're like, hello, Jesus. We're in a crowd. Everyone's touching you just like they're touching us. And he's like, no, no, something happened. Breakthrough happened. And this woman, 
shows us that if you and I want to start experiencing courage, courage is an action. That's why it's four times it's mentioned she touched his cloak. It is not an emotional feeling. It is not angry music that you listen to to psych yourself up and run out with bravado. It is not storming a beach. It's a willingness to try, to trust, and to tell more than what you are comfortable with. That's the really oversimplified definition of what it looks like practically to do courage every single day. To try more than you're comfortable with, to tell more than you're comfortable with, and to trust more than you're comfortable with. And she does all three of these things with Jesus. She tries more than anyone ever would have done in her place. She trusts more than anyone. She trusts Jesus when he says, step out. And then she tells more than what anyone would be okay with her saying. And then if you and I are willing to begin to daily try, tell, and trust more than you're comfortable doing so, then what you will find is that courage, that act of courage, will start to creep into all of our relationships, our personal, our professional spaces. It'll start to shape and change the way we do things. It'll impact our relationships, but in the end, it also starts to do something to us. We believe in relationships here. We think relationships make a difference. That as, as great as the rows in this room are, we recognize that we're life change, we're connection, where hope happens in the nitty gritty details is not in rows, but in circles. When you're sitting around face to face someone and you're willing to try, trust and tell more than what you would normally be comfortable with. And in that moment, it is terrifying. Yes. But in that moment, you step into courage and you start to grow. And you start to open yourself up to more than what you're currently living with and for. And in that moment, something can begin to happen. That's why as a church, we do groups. That we have this gathering, and as great as this gathering it is, we oftentimes will tell you about the groups you can get involved with. That you can serve with a group on Sunday morning. Or that you can serve with a group on sometimes our community events. Or this, this afternoon at Dedham Day. Or that you can get connected with groups for for long-term or short-term, and that one of those groups that we kick off next week's life groups. And these are groups that meet in homes and just take the message from that Sunday and press in personally and professionally in a deeper way. And it's a place where we believe you can grow no matter where you are spiritually, and it's a place that you can connect no matter how connected you already are. Because it's a context where you can try, tell, and trust more than what you're comfortable with. And today, one of the things that we're going to do just to, to help prevent provide some opportunities right after the service in in the room group room 102 room right off the lobby beside starting point that that glass office space with the sliding door we're going to have a brief meet and greet where for five minutes you can walk in and you can kind of see the people who are going to be leading these groups and have the number one question answered that you probably have that i have are these people creepy that's what i want to can i see myself not trying to fake a phone call to get out of the room if I sit down with them. All right? Don't, don't act like you don't do that. And this is what this meet and greet is for, for you to meet them and realize, oh, okay, they're not as weird as I thought they were. And, and so right after service, maybe for some of you, that's the next step. That's for your try, trust, and tell more next step is just to walk into that room and to pay attention to who's in there and to be open to signing up. Every one of our groups if you're interested in them, you can sign up today or you can let us know you're interested right in the app with the starting point icon. Every one of our groups are already listed in there. 
And whether it's a short-term group, whether it's a long-term group like a life group, or whether it's serving on a Sunday morning, there is a group and a place and a space where you can try, trust, and tell more than you're comfortable doing so. And in, and in the process, begin to experience something. Because here's the thing. Verse 34. Courage has a purpose. Courage has outcomes. And courage has impact. In verse 34, Jesus tells her to step out, and she does. And she tells the whole story. This is why we know all of these details about what she was thinking. Because Peter hears it and tells Mark, man, this is what was going on inside. And so Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The reason that I believe courage is so critical is because courage is at the heart of us revealing more of us. And that it's in revealing more of us that we open ourselves up to healing. That we will stay stuck in our hurt, in our dirt, in our struggle as long as we conceal. But the moment we're willing to open our mouths and start revealing is the moment we open ourselves up to start to experience healing. And some of you have tasted that before. And that's what that was. It was you starting to open up your heart and your life to take it out of the bottle. And what happens when you open up your heart is God starts to do something with that heart. He starts to bring life. It starts to beat again. And in doing so, you start to experience things that were cut off in that child's story, right? When she put her heart in that safe place, she didn't just protect herself from pain. She also cut herself off from all the wonder in the world, too. This is why Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from suffering. And I love about this moment is that Jesus, in the course of these short verses, um, he interacts with two different people. He interacts with this man, right? The one that we started with, who's prominent, who's powerful, who's wealthy, who has influence. And what is his response when he meets Jesus? Jesus, come with me. My little girl, my daughter is dying. She's 12 years old. And then Jesus takes a couple steps, and what does he find? He finds a woman who's been stuck in this place for 12 years. And it's subtle, but it's significant, because Jesus uses a word in this book that we don't see any other place in the book of Mark. He says, daughter. Man. I mean, just think the crowd. Remember the context, right? They have come. They're following Jesus because of this little Girl, die. And Jesus stops the crowd and says, daughter. He calls her out because he recognized that in her revealing to the public, her healing starts. People will stop treating her like she's some unclean nobody. They will see her and not just see her. He affirms her. He says, daughter. He speaks these words over her. That's powerful. This woman in brokenness and poverty experiences a breakthrough and gets told by the king of the universe one of the most intimate words that he could speak to her. He calls her daughter. And that I think this thing is critical because as Christians, we should be the most courageous people. That if you're in this room and you're, you're a Christian, that I think what should mark your life and my life is courage. And here's why is because we understand something fundamental at the heart of what guided this woman. We understood the conviction underneath her courage. 
See, as Christians, we recognize that all of us come into this family called Christianity as through the lens, through the doorway of the cross. And what, what does the cross represent? The cross represents brokenness, our brokenness. You cannot be a Christian and simultaneously be unaware of your brokenness. You can't walk out the Christian life and somehow live as if you're better than someone else. That while Christians can have judgments and decisions and opinions about things, especially informed by Scripture, we are not to be judgmental people. The reason why is because we don't sit on platforms looking down. We stand at the foot of the cross on our knees in brokenness, recognizing that I am in this family where I am being made perfect because of Jesus and my willingness to own up to the brokenness in my life, to own up to the brokenness inside of me that constantly works against me. And it's in that acknowledgement that we discover a powerful principle that she demonstrates that it brokenness is not a barrier It's a bridge to relationships. It's a bridge to healing. It's a bridge to full life. Many of us treat our brokenness like it's the deep, dark secret no one knows when in fact all of us recognize that everyone around us is broken. And when you rest in the conviction that you are in fact broken and that I am broken, then I have the courage to say and to be open to feedback and to hear the words of others spoken over me. It's the reason why Jesus could say these words to her because he realized it's not just our brokenness that's a bridge to relationships around us, our willingness to admit when we make mistakes and to confess and own up to it and ask for forgiveness. It's also the very bridge to God himself, that he doesn't wait or expect for us to come to him perfect. Perfect is a barrier because if we live with a willingness and a belief that we're perfect, then the problem is that there is no bridge there. But when we acknowledge our brokenness, what we find is that God is willing to drop the cross down like a drawbridge so that we can walk across to him. And this is powerful. Our brokenness is our strength. Our brokenness is not a secret. It's the very bridge that allows us to walk into the hearts and lives of other people. And it's the one that this woman used to walk across. Not just to name the ostrich effect that day, but to tame it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the words of hope and life that you bring. Thank you that we do not have to be afraid of our brokenness. That we do not have to be afraid of the secrets and the shame. That we don't have to live trapped, confined by them anymore. That because of what you hold out to us, because of what you have done for us, we can be people who experience healing. That we be people who experience life. And so help us today. In those moments, in those memories, those conversations, in those relationships where we recognize that what needs to mark us, what needs to mark those moments is our courage. So help us to take steps of courage today. And help us to take a significant step of courage towards you. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.